we come to the final game. My old vocabulary, it's the seventh game of the World Series. It's about over. The fifth session of Pilgrim's Progress. At the outset, I'd like to first of all express my appreciation to your camp pastor and the officials of the camp for inviting me to come and speak to you this year. I consider it a privilege and an opportunity. I'd also like to thank all of the counselors and the campers who have shown your cooperation this week. It's been a very peaceful experience uh, for me. Of course, since I'm not overseeing you directly, why, that explains a lot. I'm sure not every counselor can say that. But I do appreciate your cooperation, and I'd like to say this, too. I have appreciated your attention that you have given to us. It's not easy in this day and age of excitement of youth to sit for an hour. And I appreciate your labors in this area. I tried to put myself in your place and to be sympathetic. And yet the purpose of this is that we're trying to concentrate so much in such a short period of time that rather than just having 20-minute sessions and a little sermonette and then you're gone, we're trying to compact so much into a short period of time in this entire week here. So we trust that you'll get, understand that. Now we come today to the fifth and final session of Pilgrim's Progress. We are rejoicing and happy for our pilgrims, Christian and hopeful. They have entered into the celestial city, and they are now happy. It's a most comforting thing to a true child of God to have reason to believe that he knows of people who are presently enjoying the eternal happiness of God today. That there is a worship service going on even now. Not here in this lower realm, as Bunyan would describe it, but in the realm of the unseen, where the spirits of just men made perfect are rejoicing together with the angels in the redemptive plan of God, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. The five letters or the five words that we have chosen to identify the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, as it is presented to men, I'd like for us to repeat those out loud. The one today, the final one, will be condemnation. Can we say all five of them to try to help us remember in the months and years to come of our week here together uh, at Panama City? The first one was what? Ready? Conviction. Let's say it again, all right? Conviction. The second was conversion. The third was confrontation. The fourth was consummation. And the fifth is condemnation. And that's what we must end upon today. Now, if you would, open with me in your books to the portion 
of the account that starts with the final page there, and that's, I believe, in your copy, page number 188. Number 188. The author now turns his head away from the consummation of the life of the pilgrim. They have been justified, sanctified, and glorified in the state of God. Their salvation has been completed. Every spiritual blessing which had been purchased for them in Christ by his death has now been applied with the one exception, and that being the resurrection of the body. And Bunyan does not deal with that, although he touches upon it by inference in the, uh, in the book. Now then, our author turns his head away from that consummated state, and he looks back down the road and he sees another character, which we've already been introduced to. I want to read that sentence. Now, while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance coming up to the riverside, But he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. The riverside, do you recall what that meant? The river of death. It was the death experience. And so here comes ignorance, and it's time for him to die. And he gets through the river without any problem at all. And we want to deal with him today. I'm not going to read the rest of the story because it's important that we go back and pick up some of the characteristics which Bunyan has revealed about ignorance, and then we'll come back and see the climax. Now, Bunyan's critics, and he has had many in literary form as well as doctrinal and theological critics, But the literary critics, that is, those who criticize and works to determine their accuracy, say that Bunyan made an error here in putting in this portion at the end of the book, that he should have left on a happy, climactic note of achieving the victory by getting his heroes into the city. And that this portion with hope, or rather with ignorance, is anticlimactic. It distracts from good literature. And my reply to that would be, is that John Bunyan was not writing this primary, primarily as a literary work. He was writing this from the burden of a pastor's heart like that of your camp pastor who has just revealed the purpose of this camp. And Bunyan was a pastor, and he was a preacher, and he wanted to see his hearers converted. And rather than close the book on a happy note of God's redemptive theme, he comes back and gives one more appeal. Won't you come? And I want to close with a warning to those of you who have heard my book, and it has not moved you, that you not end up in the state like ignorance. So he's a preacher. Now, I haven't commented this week 
on the book in its literary fashion. But up until about 30 years ago, you can go back in our American educational system and nearly any English class in high school or college was considered inadequate if it did not use Pilgrim's Progress as a classic work of literature. Some of you go back and ask your parents if they are age 40 and over, or your grandparents, and you will find very few that were not exposed in their English classes in school. Now, not in Sunday school, but in the public school system to the book Pilgrim's Progress. But now our educational system has so changed in its emphasis that now it has been replaced with such famous works as Catcher in the Rye and other so-called literary classics. And if you haven't been exposed to that one in your public school system, why, you probably will uh, before long. All right, now then, let's go back to page 166. This has been a tense week for me because my nature, from that of my physical birth and joined in with my spiritual birth, is that of intricate detail. I'm a detailed person, and my family finds it difficult to live with a perfectionist or a detailed person. A detailed person is someone who doesn't want anything overlooked, wants everything just right. And so it's been a tense thing to me this week to have to pass over so many things, but we must do so. And I must do that in our narrative here with Christian and ignorance. But I'm going, so I'm, what I'm omitting is not just because it isn't important, but because of time's sake. We want to find out what kind of a person it was that Bunyan viewed that should bear the name of ignorance. Top of page 166. Then Christian said to him, Come away, man, why do you stay so far behind? Ignorance, I take my pleasure in walking alone, even more a great deal than in company, unless I like it better. That is, I'd rather talk with myself unless I like the company. If I like the company, I'll fellowship. If I don't like the company, I'd rather stay by myself. Then said Christian to Hopeful, but softly, sort of whispering, Did not I tell you he cared not for our company? But however, said he, come up and let us talk away the time in this solitary place. Then directing his speech to ignorance, he said, Come, how do you? How stands it between God and your soul now? What's your relationship with God? Let's talk about this, ignorance. Ignorance. I hope well, for I am always full of good motions that come into my mind to comfort me as I walk. That is, I never try to dwell on negative thoughts. I have my mind filled with positive, hopeful, comforting thoughts all the time. I'm all right with God. What good notions, pray tell us, ignorance, why I think of God in heaven. Now, here's one of the marks of a religious person who's self-deceived. They think of God in heaven. 
Are you here like that? And you signed a little slip that I'm a Christian. Did you do so because you think, well, I must be a Christian. I think about God ever so often in heaven. Christians, so do the devils and damned souls. I think Dr. Nettles made a reference to that in one of his messages, that just because you believe in God and heaven doesn't mean that you are a Christian. The devils believe that. Ignorance. But wait a minute, he says, I think of them and I desire them. So now here's a fellow that's not just a pure devil. He says, I desire these things that I think about. But so many that are never like to come there. The, slow, the soul of the sluggard desires and hath nothing. That's Christian's response. Ignorance. But I think of them and leave all for them. I think of God. I desire to be with God. And I have forsaken all the pleasures of this world in order to obey God. Christian, that I doubt. For leaving of all is a very hard matter. You remember what happened to Christian in his experience back down the way when he was led out of the way by Mr. Worldly Wise Man and was told to go to the village of morality and what nearly fell on him? Remember the mountain representing the law of God? It's a very difficult thing to leave all to please God, but ignorance thought he had. He didn't think he was that bad. He thought he had enough ability to be a good person. Yea, that is a harder matter than many are aware of. But why or by what art thou persuaded that thou hast left all for God in heaven? Christian says, now you say that you've left all. What persuades you that you have done this? Now watch, young people. Ignorance, my heart tells me so. How do you know that you're saved, ignorance? My heart just tells me that I am. My heart tells me that. Can you think of any text right away that you would give back to ignorance? The heart is what? Is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? You can't trust your heart. That's what the Bible, God's Word has to say. You cannot trust your heart. Christian replies in this fashion, the wise man, that's Solomon, said, he that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Ignorance. Now, look how clever and how informed ignorance is. He says, oh, but that's spoken of an evil heart. <laughs> he knows the Bible. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? Didn't he quote the Bible to Jesus? People that are going to end up lost are going to know something about the Bible, many of them. And so ignorance says, yes, that's true. That's biblical. He that trusts his own heart is a fool, but that's spoken of an evil heart. Mine is a good one. Now, Christian comes right back. He says, well, how do you prove that? How do you know you've got a good heart? Well, it comforts me in hopes of heaven. It assures me that I'm going to heaven. Christian, that may be through its deceitfulness, for a man's heart may minister comfort to him in the hopes of that thing for which he yet has no ground to hope. Some of you have got some hopes that maybe 
you might go home with a boyfriend or a girlfriend from here. Do you know that? I don't want to shatter your hopes, but there may be something come up in two or three weeks when that boy or that girl that you've made an acquaintance with this week gets back to their hometown and they see somebody else. Your hopes may be shattered, but your heart may just be assured, oh, this is genuine. It's really going to last. Dr. Nettle so vividly portrayed last night the fallen nature of man that when the heart wants something bad enough, the mind will rationalize it away. And so ignorance is ruled by his affections, not by the rational understanding of what God declares him to be. So he's got a deceived heart. Ignorance replies, though, But my heart and life agree together, and therefore my hope is well grounded. That is not only what I hope for, I've got a life to back it up. I'm not a hypocrite. Well, Christian, he prods again. Who told thee that thy heart and life agree together? And his reply is what? My heart tells me so. You see, every time he's running back to a subjective experience... He will not be judged by an objective standard. My heart tells me that. And any time anybody comes around ignorance and starts questioning him and causes him to doubt, ignorance mind does a gymnastic trick upon him. I said, no, don't think about that. Negative thoughts are bad. Positive thoughts come from God. Now, that's why, pastors, you can preach the unsearchable riches of the Bible to people week after week after week, and they're sitting out there and they're playing gymnastic tricks in their minds. You can preach the total depravity of man, and they'll sit out there and say, wait a minute, that makes me feel bad. God wouldn't have me feel bad. God is positive. That light is positive. Darkness is negative. I'll only think about good things. And thus they sift your message. And then they'll blot out all of that. And then when you come to the mercies and the comforts of God in the gospel, they'll say, oh, that's comforting. That's comforting. And they're ignorant. They're ignorant. We're going to define ignorance here in just a moment uh, to you. My heart tells me so. Now, I'm going to drop down in your book from 167, about three or four paragraphs, and pick up ignorant statement. At Pray, what counts you good thoughts and a life according to God's commandments? Christian says, but you must measure yourself by the objective standards of God's word, not your heart. And he says, well, now, tell me then, what is a life according to God's commandments, Christian? Well, there are good thoughts of divers or different kinds, some respecting ourselves, some God, some Christ, and some good things, ignorance. What be good thoughts respecting ourselves? You see, now ignorance is a way. You're talking my language now. You're talking about good thoughts. Well, what are some good thoughts about ourselves? And he thinks he's going to get patted on the back. But now watch what happens. Christian says, such as agree with the word of God. You want to have a good thought about yourself, then you must agree with God's assessment of yourself. What is God's assessment of ourself? 
When do our thoughts of ourselves agree with the word of God, ignorant states? Now watch what Christian says. When we pass the same judgment upon ourselves which the word passes. To explain myself, the word of God saith of persons in a natural condition, there is none righteous. There is none that doeth good. It saith also that every imagination of the heart of a man is only evil, and that continually. And again, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. You mean that's a good thought? It is when you take God's assessment of it. Watch on. Now then, when we thus think of ourselves having sense or understanding thereof, when are our thoughts good ones, or then are our thoughts good ones, because according to the word of God. And I'd like for you, unless you don't want to defile your books, as some uh, have that, my Bible looks like it's been written from one corner to another, and I run across people who ever so often think I've defiled the word of God because I've added something to it. I remember in one uh, meeting I was talking with a lady after the service, and I'd written all over it and in the margin and everything, and she actually interrupted her question and took me to Revelation 2, or Revelation and said, Whosoever shall add to, take away from the word of God, or your part be taken out of heaven. She thought because I had written in the margin of my Bible that I was adding to the word of God. I don't understand that in that light. But if you don't care to write in your book, underscore this next sentence. Ignorance says, how many of you have it there before you? Can we read it out loud together? Let's read his statement. Ready? I will never believe that my heart is thus bad. Now, there is the root problem of ignorance. As Dr. Nettles has so vividly brought out, ignorance has a moral aversion to what God gives in his assessment of men. God's assessment of a sinner, of a human being, is that there is none righteous, no, not one, that the heart is desperately evil, and if you want to have a good thought about yourself, then you side with God in what he says about yourself. And ignorance says, I will never. Now, notice this is not just something he didn't say, I don't believe that. He said, I will never believe that. Why, Dr. Nettles? Because he has an aversion to that teaching that man is depraved and has an enmity with God. I'm going to stop there. Now, if you would go over on page 169, Christian begins to show the word of God and press upon him even more. Ignorance says, Do you think that I am such a fool as to think God can see no further than I, or that I could come to God in the best of my performances? Christian has charged him with being one who was depending upon himself for salvation. And ignorance says, Do you mean, you think I'm a fool? Do you think that I believe that with the best of my deeds I can please God? No, I don't believe that. Well, now that sounds a little hopeful, but watch on. Christian, how dost thou think in this matter? Ignorance. Why, to be short, I think that I must believe in Christ for what? 
justification. Here's a man who's not uneducated. Pastor, here's a man who's not been evangelized. Here is a man who has been exposed to the teachings of the Word of God. He says, I believed in order to go to heaven, I must believe in Christ for my justification. Now, young people, you've been hearing the need of justification this week and acceptance with God. How is this man going to perish who believes that Christ must justify? Well, let's see what he means by justification. Christian, how? Think thou must believe in Christ when thou seest not thy need of him? If you don't have that bad a heart, why do you need Christ? Any person who denies that they have a bad heart, I don't care how many Sunday school pins they have, has never been brought to see their need of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You may talk about his death on the cross, you may talk about his justification, you may talk about his miracles and know all about his life, but if you deny that you've got a heart so bad that unless God takes that heart out, you've never trusted in Christ for free justification. Thou thou neither seest thy original nor actual infirmities. You don't see where your sin nature came from, and you don't really believe that you have that bad a sin. But has such an opinion of thyself and of what thou doest as plainly renders thee to be one that did never see a necessity of Christ's personal righteousness to justify thee before God. How then dost thou say, I believe in Christ? Now, that still doesn't shut the mouth of ignorance. Because he believes in a concept of justification, just like that there are many people who profess Christianity, teach Sunday school classes, preach and pastor churches, who believe in justification. But it's not the proper definition of what justification is. Ignorance. I believe well enough for all that. Christian, how do you believe? Now, notice ignorance Understanding of the doctrine of justification. I believe that Christ died for sinners and that I shall be justified before God from the curse through his gracious acceptance of what, young people? My obedience to his law. He says, I believe Christ died in order to give me a period of time to render obedience to his law. That's not justification. That's not grace. Now, most of the young people here today, you haven't yet gotten into debt. You don't use your credit cards. Most of you don't have them. But they will come when you'll have to go down the bank and uh, you'll fill out a little contract and you're going to borrow some money to buy a car or something like that. And they're going to introduce to you that at a certain time of the month, the payment must be rendered to the bank or else the car gets taken back. That's just the way it works. But they're going to be what our culture calls gracious to you. 
they're going to give you what they call a grace period, that if you don't make the payment on time, you'll be allowed so many days before a penalty sets in. And they call that grace, Gary. And what all it's doing is, they're not saying, I as the banker am going to do this. If you don't make your payment, I'll make it for you. That's not what grace period is with the banker. The banker is saying, if you don't make your payment on time, I'll be gracious and give you enough time until by your own ability you come up with the payment. That concept has filtered through in the human thinking from the pulpit to define what it means to be justified by grace. To where today the average pulpit man says this, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the debt for you so as to hold off what God requires until you of your own free will and ability come up with enough obedience to satisfy and complete the debt. That's not justification. Justification is by free grace alone. It is not God giving you an extended period of time to pay your debt. But that's how ignorance, one part of how he interpreted justification. Now then, he says, if that's not what the Bible means by justification, here's what it may mean also, or thus... Christ makes my duties that are religious acceptable to his Father by virtue of his merits, and so I shall be justified. If my duties and my obedience is not perfect, then God will finish up what I provide. But ignorance's hope is all based in the fact that he has some goodness in him which God is going to work upon and improve and then accept those actions on the basis of the payment of the debt. Christian, let me give an answer to this confession of thy faith. Thou believest with a fantastical faith. For this faith is nowhere described in the word. Secondly, thou believest with a false faith because it taketh justification from the personal righteousness of Christ and applies it to your own. Number three, this faith maketh not Christ a justifier of thy person, but of thy actions, and of thy person for thy actions' sake, which is false." Young people, the doctrine of justification by faith is that God justifies not the righteous but the ungodly. And it's not because of any natural abilities which you have, and listen carefully, God doesn't justify you because of the grace that he works in you and then accepts that as righteousness. He justifies you on the grounds of the righteousness of the substitute. Jesus' perfect life is what is imputed to you, and your sin debt is imputed to Jesus Christ. It is not what God does in you that justifies you. It is true God works in us to sanctify us and to move, remove this moral aversion, but it is not the righteousness which I am doing right now which is going to pay my sin debt. 
I love Christ. I'm trying to magnify him. I hope that's an act of righteousness. But that will be not what will gain me acceptance with God. I must not trust what I am doing or what God is doing in me to pay the sin debt. I must trust in the righteousness of the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And that is free justification. Now, notice ignorance had a view of justification, but it was inadequate. Quickly, therefore, this faith is deceitful, even such as will leave thee under wrath in the day of God Almighty, for true justifying faith puts the soul, as sensible of its lost condition by the law, upon flying for refuge unto Christ's righteousness, which righteousness of his is not an act of grace by which he maketh, for justification, thy obedience accepted with God, but his personal obedience to the law in doing and suffering for us what was required at our hands. This righteousness, I say, true faith accepteth under the skirt of which the soul being shrouded and by it presented as spotless before God, it is accepted and acquit from condemnation. Jesus closed us as believers with a robe of righteousness, and that righteousness is his. And that's what justifies us. Now, notice when ignorance hears this definition of justification and acceptance with God, he rails against it on this ground. What would you have us trust to what Christ has done in his own person, what Christ in his own person has done without what? Would you have me to look to what Christ has done without what I am to do? This concept would loosen the reins of our lust and tolerate us to live as we list or as we will. For what matter how we live, if we may be justified by Christ's personal righteousness from all when we believe it. Have you ever heard that? You mean that I... You are to be saved by Christ and his righteousness alone, apart from our obedience? Why, we can't believe that. That would allow me to live however I wanted to live, if I believed that. And then we close in this section with Christians saying, Ignorance is thy what? Ignorance is your name, and as thy name is, so art thou. Even this thy answer demonstrated what I say. Ignorant art thou of what justifying righteousness is, and as ignorant how to secure thy soul from the faith of it, from the heavy wrath of God, yea, thou art also art ignorant of the true effects of saving faith in this righteousness of Christ, which is to bow and win over the heart to God in Christ, to love his name, his word, his ways, his people, and not as thou ignorantly Imagineth. Then hopeful, ask him, ask him if he's ever had a relationship or a revelation from God. Ask him if he's ever had grace applied to him. And then ignorance says, nope, that's the end of the conversation. You're an enthusiast. You look for signs and visions. And so their conversation comes to a close. Go to page 172 and we'll leave off with the introduction to ignorance, and come to the final part of the book to where his destiny shall be.
the top of the page, ignorance, you go so fast, I cannot keep pace with you. What's he saying? I've had people tell me that when I try to explain the difference between free justification and a justification of our own acts. Here's what they say. Preacher, you're going too deep for me to understand. Just stay with the simple things of the gospel. Keep it simple. You're running too fast for me to keep up with you. That's too hard and mysterious to understand. I cannot keep pace with you. Do you go on before? I must stay a while behind. Then he said, then they said, Well, ignorance, wilt thou yet foolish be to slight good counsel ten times given thee? And if thou yet refuse it, thou shalt know ere long the evil of thy doing so. Remember, man, in time, stoop, do not fear, good counsel taken well saves, therefore hear. But if thou shalt light it, thou will be the loser, ignorance, I'll warrant thee. Now would you turn back to the close of the book where we started, and let's see where the destiny of ignorance is going to take him. Now, we've given you a theological or a biblical description of the character of ignorance. I'd like to explain to you, now after seeing this individual, really what the word ignorant means. We use it in somewhat of a broad sense today, which is sort of different from its original root meaning. We use it to describe all people who are uneducated and uninformed. But do you know where the root word is in the English from ignorance? What's the first? To ignore. To ignore. Ignorance is not an unevangelized person. Ignorance is someone who has heard the truth and is choosing to ignore it. Because the truth tells him what he's like, what God is, and he will not accept the record. If you have your Bibles now, would you open them with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and here we'll see how the Apostle Paul uses this term ignorance. Ignorance. Now, a boy or girl can go to school, and uh, they may not know in the, in the kindergarten what seven times seven is. They are uninformed, they're uneducated. But it would be not strictly correct to say that they're ignorant in the way that the word actually denotes itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle has been given some very strong words of instruction as to how God would have the church services conducted. And then we read in verse 36, What came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself, did I give you the chapter? Chapter 14 and uh, verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the what? Commandments of God. Now watch next. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. What is the apostle saying? I have explained in detail to you how God would have you conduct yourselves. 
But if you refuse to receive the instructions and ignore them, then you remain in a state of ignorance. Don't feel sorry for ignorance. Ignorance is not some poor little fellow who's a victim of his circumstances. Ignorance is a person who refuses to embrace the truth that he has a nature which is morally adverse to the work of God, to the holiness of God. And thus he refuses to be saved by God's way and by God's way alone. Now then, are you ready for our concluding thoughts here as he enters up to the riverside? Now, as I stood gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside, but he soon got over, and that without half the difficulty which the other two men met with. For it happened that there was then in that place one what? What's his name? Vain hope. What does he do? What does he run? He runs a ferry boat. That with his boat helped him over, so he, as the others I saw, did ascend to the hill to come up to the gate. What a vivid description. Ignorance is going to the celestial city with a vain hope that he's going to be accepted by God. You read Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It describes there that if men don't love the truth, God turns them over to a reprobate mind to be damned because they love not the truth. If you resist the truth and say, I don't need that kind of gospel, I'm not that bad a person, then God may turn you over to a deceptive, vain hope. And your heart just tells you every time you hear your need of Christ as a Savior, as a Savior who only can save, it'll tell you, wait a minute, I'm not that bad a person. And you'll go to, to the celestial city, the gates of it, with a vain hope. I state here in my notes, it's possible for an unsaved person to face death without fear. I've read too many accounts of soldiers on the battlefield who have given their lives. I've read accounts of men who have lived and gone through battles and say that you can reach such a state of battle weariness that you no longer fear the bullets. That's what the vain hope of a mind can do. You can actually reach a point in which that you can hear preaching like you've heard this week, and it's just like pouring water off a duck's back. No conviction whatsoever anymore, because you've got your hope. Read on. Notice that there was neither any man met him with the least encouragement. I've tried to encourage you to come to Christ this week. Brother Nettles has, your counselors has, your past camp pastor has. They've tried to welcome you to come and join in in this Christian experience. And you remember that these individuals welcomed Christian and hopeful right up to the gate. But these individuals, these messengers from heaven, never gave one word of encouragement to those who had vain hope and were ignorant. 
That's why I can't leave with you an encouraging word. I'm not here today to sing. Oh, I wish I could sing. I'll have to leave it to Tom. If I try to break out singing, why, you talk about laughter. It would be. I'm not going to leave you with a home, home on the range where the buffalo roam and the clouds are not, or the skies are not cloudy all day. I've got to leave you with a cloudy scene, a warning. If you think you're going to be accepted with God apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting that His grace and His grace alone is necessary to save you. Things are not going to end up in a cloudless day. You're going to a vain hope of destruction. When he was come up to the gate, he looked to the, up to the writing that was above and then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him. Now, what did it say over the gate? You remember? Drop back a couple of pages in your copy. Now, when they were come up to the gate, there was written over it in letters of gold, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to enter to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Ignorance sees that. He says, Oh, my, this gate's just going to fly right open. I've done the commandments. I'm righteous. And he was standing there knocking, expecting entrance to be opened with no problem. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Whence come you? What would you have? He answered, I have eat and drank in the presence of the king, and he's taught in our streets. What's he saying, young people? I've gone to church. I've partaken of communion. I've sat under the teaching of the Christian faith. The king has taught in the streets where I live. Then they ask him for his what? Certificate. That they might go in and show it to the king. What did the certificate represent? 
God's way of saving sinners in Christ, so that the person who embraces that way could have a joyful assurance of acceptance with the King. Hopeful, what did he do? Look at your passage. He fumbled in his bosom for one, and what? What's your bosom? In a figurative sense? Huh? Your heart. What's ignorance been trusting in? His heart. Now he begins to fumble around in his heart. Just like he did when Christian and Hopeful began to ask him for his hope of heaven. He fumbled around, but now his heart was exposed. He found nothing to answer. Then they said, Have you none? But the man answered, Never a word. And so they told the king that he would not come, but he would not come down to see him but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and Hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. What a sobering picture we have here. This is based by Bunyan upon the account in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22 with the wedding supper. Remember, there were many invited to the wedding supper, but there appeared a man there who didn't have on a what? A wedding garment. And what did they do to that man in the parable that Jesus gave? He was taken and cast out of the wedding supper into outer darkness, nowhere there was no light. I want you to note something here in passing. They went and told the king, and I've underscored this in my book, but he would not come down to see them. What does that mean? It means what your camp pastor was telling you about the rules yesterday of this camp. The king would not bend the rules to let ignorance in. The king would not lower the requirements of coming down to meet ignorance where he was at. Young people, I am convinced with all of my heart, mind, and soul that the masses of people that I deal with today have a concept of God. They know that he has laws and he has ways, but that when that final day comes, God is going to be so torn between having to cast somebody into hell that he's going to realize at that moment I'm such a loving God, I just can't do this. Mothers today tell me that, yes, I know the Bible says I ought to discipline my kids, but I just love them too much. And then they carry over that same concept about God, that there's going to be a day come out there in which God is going to be so overwhelmed with the horrors of hell that he's going to change his mind and say, wait a minute, all right, just because you didn't come in by Christ, I'm going to lower the standards and let the Muslims in and let the Mohammedans in and all of these others. I'm going to let everybody in. Not so. The holiness of God will not be lowered to allow sinners into heaven that are impenitent. 
What if God let ignorance and others into heaven in their state of aversion to him? Do you know what would happen to heaven? It would become another place just like this present world is. Listen to me. God allowed sin to enter into the first paradise in Eden, but he's not going to allow it to enter into the second paradise of the celestial city. God will not accept any human being into heaven who does not have a perfect sin debt paid for and who has had their moral aversion removed or not had their moral aversion removed. God will not lower the standards. He won't bend the rules. Another thought. He commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and hope for the city Go out and take them. Who are the two shining ones? What did they represent? The angels, all right? The same ones who stand in the place of God, watching the face of God, ready to do the will of God. When God says, go down and welcome Christian and hopeful, those same two, when God says, go take ignorance and bind him and cast him into outer darkness, they immediately do so. There's no reluctance. Why? Because they've seen a vision of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. I've often thought, what if I had been an angel and God said, Jim, I have a message for you to do, an errand for you to do. What is it, Master? I want you to go down there to that woman named Mary. She's a virgin. And I want you to tell her she's going to have the privilege of bearing the Son of God. Wouldn't that be a pleasant task? To bear such a comforting message, go tell that young woman I'm going to bless her. And then I have wondered, Pastor, what I'd be like if I were the angel that God came to me and said, Listen, Jim. I want you to go down there into Egypt, and I want you to take the life of all the firstborn children. Would I have welcomed that message to the same degree that I would have welcomed the other message? And I, as a human being, am torn there because I don't see the holiness of God yet as clearly as the holy angels do in heaven. Young people, it is a sobering thought, but there will come a day if you're a child of God in which there's a possibility you may see a brother or a sister cast into outer darkness. Parents, you may see children from your own body cast into outer darkness. I'm not playing tricks with you. I'm not trying to get you emotionally stirred up here. I'm telling you the truth. This is what the book says. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. How on earth shall I be able to take that? Because I will see the holiness of God. And the book of Revelation describes that when mystery Babylon falls, there's a fourfold alleluia, 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 alleluia. Praise from the creatures of God unto God. God is just. And 
when we see sin through the eyes of God as he sees sin, we'll be able to say of our own loved ones who have died in ignorance, even so, Father, it seemed what? Good in thy sight. You'll never embrace this concept of God without a vision of the glory of God. Then they took him up and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. We won't take time to go back where that was at. And then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. So I awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Some of you right now are hoping that what I'm saying, you're going to wake up when this is all over. You say, oh, well, that was just a dream. You ever have nightmares? All of us do, don't we? Isn't it comforting to wake up and realize it was just a nightmare? The sobering thing is what I'm saying today is not a dream. This is real. And Bunyan would leave us with this warning. He saw that there was a place that you could go to hell directly at the gate of the celestial city, thinking you're going to enter there, as well as there is of living a loose, pagan, immoral life in the city of destruction. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day... Have I not done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out devils? Surely, Lord, if anybody gets in, it'll be me. And they're arguing with him in that day. And what are the words of the Master? Sorry, I what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never did know you. Sends the angels, bind them hand and feet, and cast them into outer darkness. All of this is based upon the words of Jesus, my people. Jesus is the one who taught more about hell than heaven. Pastor Bill, when I was a little boy, my mother used to read to me, stories before I'd go to bed sometimes. Little Red Riding Hood. You ever hear that story? Is that something? That's something all the rest of you don't know today here. Anybody hear a Little Red Riding Hood? Hmm? Just a handful of young people. Several stories like that. Three Little Pigs. How many of you remember that one? Okay. Oh, I'd get so scared when that wolf would come on the scene. Eat grandmother up. Mom, she had a way for that, you know. Well, don't worry about it. The, the woodchopper will cut his stomach open later, and grandma will get back out. You know. But she'd go through and act all this out, and my mother was very dramatic. Oh, I'd sit there on the edge of my seat. Scared, and then I'd get close to Mother. And do you know how every one of those stories ended up? 
and they lived what? Happily ever after. And I could go to sleep. Mom never did tell me what happened to the wolf. But supposedly, it didn't cause any more trouble. This book tells us not everybody is going to die and live happily ever after. It tells us where the wolves and the goats are going to spend eternity. I haven't told you a fairy tale this week to try to scare the hell out of you. I've commended the truth to your consciences. And now I'm backing off and leaving you to deal with God directly. There is a happy ending for God's sheep. It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. But there's also an unhappy ending for the enemies of the gospel. No person, young people, will go to hell who does not deserve to go there. They will not be a victim of lack of information. But you say, Pastor, not everybody ever hears a Christian. How can God send them to hell? Because just as ignorant sat in a church and ignored the gospel, there are multitudes who today are going out on this beach and looking at the majesty of the creation and ignoring the witness in the creation and in their conscience that there is a God. So God can be just in condemning them. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Follow Him. And there is a reward at the end of the way. I pray that I will see you there. Will you follow me? Will you meet me there? Most of you, you'll never see me again in this life. Will the day come one day when we go and stand before that celestial city Will our thoughts come back to that week in midsummer in Panama City, Florida, where we shared the things of the Christian experience together? Or will there be some here who will walk up to that gate in ignorance? And then when you are told your destiny, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't know, I didn't know. No, you cannot leave this youth conference this week saying, I don't know. If you do, you will leave choosing to ignore what you have had presented to you. Come with me, and let's go on a pilgrimage together. May God bless his word.